welcome, dear listeners, to episode nine of the Jacobs podcast. On this episode, I'm very fortunate to be joined by Australian legal academic professor David Flint. And on this episode, we talk about everything from the English language and the rule of law through to civil society and constitutional government and some of the prospects for the Australian Republican movement and then also have the importance of having cultural confidence in our past. We're an extraordinary country. I think we've got a great deal to be proud of. And then Professor Flint and I uh, shed some light on some of these important aspects of our past. A reminder to please get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au if you have any ideas for future episodes or or feedback. Uh, And then also a reminder, whatever medium you listen to, if it's on Apple Podcasts or anything else, please leave a review and uh, a rating. That would tremendously help the podcast and sharing the message that I want to be able to share. Happy listening, listeners, and until next time. Professor David Flint, welcome to the Jacobs podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be on your program, and uh, I think you're doing some wonderful things there on these podcasts, the sort of thing we really need in the country. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, uh, David. I first wanted to ask you about Australian history. Um, In my spare time, I've had to do a lot of unscrambling and when reading up on Australian history, you know, looking at people like um, Cook and wh- why he didn't settle Australia, who was this Arthur Philip character, uh, what were the Portuguese and Spanish doing at the time, did they ever touch the continent and the growth of the early colony and the colonies. Um, but these are things I was taught very little of at school. Why do you think this is so and do you think an appreciation of Australian history and our founding has actually declined over time? Well, I think that's very true, and it's part of a decline overall in the standards of education here. I don't think it's so much a problem created by the teachers. It's more from outside, and it flows, I think, very much from the situation, the governmental situation in Australia. We had a very clear division of powers between the new Commonwealth at the time of Federation and the states. And it was really reflecting the realization which the Americans had, there being the the first great modern federation, the realization you have to have government close to the people. And in a federation, there's a great advantage in having differences between the states. And the reason for that is that it encourages competition. One of the best examples of competition I can recall, was by the Queensland Premier, Sir J. B. Elke Peterson. When I was a young solicitor, I remember that one of the very worst taxes, particularly for farmers and small business people, were death duties, because quite often when the the head of the family died, as quite often is the case, he would die and... Uh, They've been thrown into the confusion and the sorrow of the death, but on top of that, the state government would impose a tax of uh, something which could be up to a third of the value. And when you're running a farm, you can hardly raise that sort of money. You've got to sell off properties and so on. It was a terrible and very unfair tax. Sir Joe, against the advice of his treasurer, decided to abolish death duties in Queensland and People started, elderly people started moving to Queensland because for some reason they preferred to leave their property to their heirs and successors and not leave a large swathe to the 
state government and also to the federal government because they also had a, another tax. Mm. And that was a marvellous example of the sort of good government you get from a federation because the Queensland example then shone out to the other states and the other states were forced to follow Queensland. But what we have now is a situation where if there's a problem in the country, the usual idea is, oh, give more power to Canberra and let them solve it. And mm. We've also got the situation where Canberra's courted most of the taxes. They, they raise about 80% of the taxes, give mm. about half back to the states, but on condition, and that applies in education. So in education, you're really getting two drivers in one car. They're squabbling with one another. The result is the cultural Marxists have moved in and they effectively run the curriculum. And the curriculum has done two things. The method of teaching has become very doctrinaire and declined. The concept of discipline has disappeared or been reduced significantly. So you get these dramatic falls in our standards where we can measure them internationally, that is in literacy and numeracy. But they've also removed the history the idea of history as a chronological history which reflects the facts which are very clear, the, the, the things that happened at the time of uh, settlement and how we imported a lot of our civilization, from, particularly from Britain and Western civilization overall. All of that, because it goes against the cultural Marxist agenda, has been abandoned. So, Children are not learning about their history, and this is a, this is a tragedy because uh, as uh, there's a famous saying that uh, those those who those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past, yeah. and that happens very much because people just don't know why yeah. things developed. Some of them developed by good chance or by realizing that something that they were doing was a good thing and that being developed and we we have a lot to learn from the history of the United Kingdom and the United States in particular and uh, how that was brought into Australia and how it affected us and uh, how well the journey was particularly up to and including Federation. Mm, absolutely. Uh, David, you're someone who writes very accessibly on Australian history and it's one of the reasons I've followed closely a lot of your work and in your essays and speeches you talk a lot about the four institutions that Governor Phillip brought with him. Um, the English language, the rule of law, constitutional government and civil society. I think these things, when you look at what was going on at the world in the at the time, um, rather, these are actually hugely beneficial institutions, especially considering uh, where the world was in the late 1700s. Could you please talk a bit about these institutions and how unique they think they've been to early Australia? Certainly, and it was an unusual laboratory because in most countries civil society already exists and the other pillars are then built on those. Ours were all brought, brought simultaneously by Philip. We, with the greatest of respect to the Aboriginal people, and I have enormous respect for them, it was a hunter-gatherer society, so it didn't have those institutions which uh, came with Philip. It had other institutions, but uh, uh, just as we don't uh, we don't remember the 
the same institutions which existed in every other part of the world because we were, we were all at some stage and not that far, not that long ago, hunters and gatherers and gradually the sort of society we live in evolved. Uh, and and uh, Philip did bring those four institutions and that led, that led inevitably to the next one which was self-government and then we ourselves decided on federation. But going back to Philip's, he brought the English language, which is of such advantage to Australians because we happen to be speaking the language of the world, the world language, because the dominant power was the United Kingdom, Great Britain, and then the next power, the very first time in history, the next power spoke the same language. And this has ensured the dominance of English across the world. And this gives... This gives people such an advantage. You, you just have to go to an international conference and realize that the native speakers of English have so many advantages. Usually they're asked to write the minutes. They give the, often they give the speeches in turn because they can express themselves so well because it is their language. And, uh, and of course it's brought a marvelous literature with us. Other countries have marvelous literatures too, but English has a superb literature. The, the next one was the rule of law. And although it was a penal colony, it was a penal colony under the rule of law, one of our politicians, who's now the Prime Minister of Australia, Mr Turnbull, when he was a member for Wentworth, made a speech in which he referred to Australia as being a British gulag. Now, the gulags were the, the slave labour camps established by the Russian secret police and in which there was no rule of law. But when uh, when they established the colony here in New South Wales, well, that was a colony for convicts. And many of those convicts had committed pretty serious offences. Some, of some of the offences looked trivial to us, but we've got to remember that uh, property, even a, a roll of cloth, was a very valuable thing at that time because they didn't have the the mass manufacture that we have today. Uh, these were people who were convicts. They'd been found guilty. and uh, But still, Philip came with a charter of justice to establish courts of civil and criminal jurisdiction. He came with an officer who was the judge advocate who was appointed to that position, David Collins. He was absolutely superb. And we see this in the very first civil case reported in New South Wales, and you can look it up. This is available to anybody who wants to check it. Within a very short period after, after Philip came to Sydney, there was a case brought by two convicts, and it related to two who'd just been married. They'd met and they'd fallen in love. They'd met in prison, actually. The man was named was Cable, and uh, what had happened was that uh, the the girl who'd had a baby, his baby, wanted to thought she could bring the baby to Sydney with her on the ships, but uh, they were told by the authorities they couldn't possibly look look after a baby on the ship, and she'd have to leave the baby behind. She was so distraught, almost suicidal, that the jailer, who must have been a very good man went down to London on a stagecoach and found the colonial secretary, Lord Sidney, and uh, 
persuaded him, told him the story, and Sydney immediately signed a, an order ordering that the girl be allowed to bring the baby with her. Now, this became a cause célèbre in London, and uh, a, uh, a society lady, Lady Cadogan, organised a campaign to raise money for them, and she raised a lot of money. In those days, it was a, it was a fortune. And they bought a lot of goods to take with them to Sydney, and they entrusted them to the captain of one of the ships. But when they got to Sydney, most of the goods disappeared. He said they'd been washed overboard. Cable was a Cable was not the man to be put off by that. He was a convict, but he went to see. Shows you the sort of society it was. You couldn't do this in a gulag. He went to see the judge advocate. The judge advocate issued a, a summons, and the ship's captain. Duncan was brought before the court, sitting in a tent in Sydney the next day. That was, justice worked pretty quickly in those days, not like it's not like it does today. And the, the judge heard the evidence, heard the evidence of uh, sailors and officers and other people, and came to came to a finding that the captain had absconded with the goods and made a very significant order in favour of cable. In today's money, it would have been a lot of money, and the captain was forced to pay that. Now, that's there in the law reports. It wouldn't happen in a Russian gulag. It wouldn't have happened in a Nazi uh, camp for political prisoners. You couldn't, you couldn't sue for damages. But here we had a living example of the rule of law arriving in Australia the moment that Philip's foot uh, went onto Sydney's soil. What came with him was the rule of law, and the other institutions, constitutional government. Philip, although he was the governor, had broad authority, but he came with instructions, royal instructions, signed by the colonial secretary, telling him what he had to do and how he had to observe the laws, because England then was a constitutional monarchy, and. It was run on constitutional rights. So that, that all was imported into New South Wales, which then flowed through to the middle of the century, by which time most of the colonies had gained uh, self-government. They, they were given a brief. They were given authority to write their own constitutions, which was then submitted to London mm. and approved and adopted by the British Parliament. So it was constitutional government. And the other thing, which is very important and sometimes overlooked, was that civil society came. That is to say, that part of society which is not part of the state. And this refers to such things as, for example, the the concept of observing basically the Ten Commandments and that accepting that uh, marriage is the fundamental institution, the family is the fundamental institution, and that this would be monogamous marriage. You, you, they didn't bring into Australia into Port Jackson, uh, polygamous marriage, although they knew about it, it existed in other parts of the empire, but it didn't come with them. It was all based on Judeo-Christian principles, just as the American colonists, who were all religious, brought with them to their respective colonies the principles of uh, the Judeo-Christian religion, not meaning in Australia that you had to be religious, but that, uh, not, that not meaning that you had to belong to any of those religions or you couldn't belong to any other religion, but uh, the principles of the society were those of a Judeo-Christian society. 
So that was the marvelous thing that came to Sydney. And uh, Philip was a, an absolutely wonderful man, a strict uh, disciplinarian, but um, he, he controlled the colony well. He ran it well and very fairly. And although it looked as though it might, uh, it might collapse because of the, the lack of food and the fact that the crops, the cropping didn't seem to work straight away, mm. it did work. And the, the, the test of this is that although it was made up of convicts, within a generation or so, the, the rate of criminality in the colony was no different from that of what would prevail in other Western countries. So uh, it, it wasn't as though uh, being uh, a criminal tendency or having a criminal tendency was was bequeathed to their successors. It wasn't. It, re it was a, a very law-abiding society. It worked very well, and it, be it was a surprising early democracy, and many of the reforms which were introduced by the Australians, for example, the secret ballot, uh, the wide suffrage for men, and even the suffrage for women were pioneering developments in Australia because it was such an advanced society. It was so successful because of how it was founded. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Look, I think the Gulag comparison there is certainly very rich, especially when you read what happened in the Gulags. Um, one oh, of yes. The, yeah. There's one absolutely the... no rule of law in the Gulags, and the same in the Nazi uh, Nazism and communism are very close. There is a, you know, the uh, the commentators like to talk about uh, communism being on the left and Nazism on the right. That's uh, I think that's uh, that's of no relevance whatsoever. Uh, they're very similar, very similar indeed, and they have common roots. Mm. They almost circle around to each other on the spectrum. Yes. But um, yes, I, one of the points you made as well previously David is about the clear instructions that uh, Governor Phillip brought with him and you know the, the rule of law is one of the the key pillars there and some of the examples I'm fond of um, they're rather sort of grim examples but I think they're really important when it comes to the rule of law is in 1797 the first white man was actually killed sorry hung for killing an Aborigine um, and then also you know fast forwarding a few decades in 1838 the Mile Creek Massacre. One of the jurors quipped that he'd never see a white man uh, killed for or hanged for killing an Aborigine. And then George Gipps heard of this and then ordered a retrial. You know, it's, it would have been so easy, especially in the 1790s, to just, you know, in in terms of cohesion, to turn a blind eye or to actually not apply or selectively apply the rule of law. But it was certainly a clear instruction and something that applied. Um, from the first fleet from the very first days in 1788. Yes, you need only compare this with the Spanish colonies in South America, yeah. the way they treated the native population, and even even more recently, the German and Belgian colonies in Africa in the yeah. late 19th century. I mean, they were ruthless, and they treated them, uh, they treated the local natives appallingly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, and I think you can see that the respect for the rule of law sort of wane over centuries in the in the Portuguese and Spanish colonies, and the respect, I guess, the diligence for the rule of law um, hasn't always been there over the past few decades and over the centuries. 
um, you know, seen in emphasising corruption and, and those sorts of things as well. Yes, and and when you talk of Philip, it's interesting. He came. He was very much uh, influenced by the Clapham sect, which was a, a Protestant sect in London. Uh, Townsend, the Lord Sydney, was also influenced by them. And this was the group of uh, Protestants from whom Shaftesbury came. This is the group that produced the anti-slavery movement. Now, Britain was a very big slave trader. There were cities like Liverpool which prospered from the trade in slaves. It wasn't that the, uh, the, every country, all, all civilizations had slaves. And uh, they got the slaves from Africa because the other Africans took took Africans and brought them to the uh, the borders where they were taken away. But they were all, you know, they, these societies did rely on slaves, and uh, uh, it was within Britain that the anti-slavery movement developed. Uh, scoffed at at the beginning, but it was the first country which actually moved to abolish. Eventually they got it through the House of Commons. They abolished the slave trade. And uh, the Royal Navy was then used to block it uh, in relation to other countries. And and then they abolished slavery within the British Empire. So that, uh, for example, in the West Indian colonies, the slaves became free first. And uh, in many ways, that's that's why the people from the West Indies who went to the United States quite often did better because they'd, they'd been brought up with a system of education and uh, they, were, they were more advanced than the American slaves who didn't get those advantages straight away. Mm. That's right. And Philip's actually a good example of you know, a cosmopolitan, a very cosmopolitan experience matching with the rule of law. You know, he, he served in the Seven Years' War in Cuba he was seconded to the Portuguese Navy. All of the early governors were very distinguished naval men. I know Macquarie had spent time in you know, America, Jamaica, India and Egypt. So I think it's a good fusion of leadership in those early governors who had you know, a strong respect, very healthy respect for the rule of law, but very cosmopolitan lives and exper- professional experiences all over the globe, probably in a way that a lot of our current leaders um, don't even have now. Yes, and you could extend that, you know, to the Convention on Federation, the mm. the erudite men, they were all men at that time, they were obviously advised by their wives quite often, but they were erudite, extremely erudite, and they were open to other ideas and they drew heavily, not only from the British Constitution, but also the American and the the Swiss. They looked at the leading examples. They were also very aware of other countries like uh, the other federations, Germany and Italy, and, and what had happened in France. But they, if you look at the convention debates, they drew on the world in a way that I think many politicians today couldn't or wouldn't. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to change gears now, David, Winston Churchill um, once said that one of the signs of a great society is the diligence with which it passes culture from one generation to the next. Um, you mentioned the, I think it's George Santayana's quote about, you know, uh, if you don't learn from history, you're condemned to repeat it. But for listeners who may not appreciate much about Australian history, and that was certainly me, and I'm no expert now, but it was certainly me only a few years ago, what do you think the real penalties 
are of not knowing about our past. Well, I think then you don't have the the pride that you should have in Australia, particularly if the minds of the young are uh, taught that we have so much to be ashamed of. We have an mm. enormous amount to be proud of. This country has been quite extraordinary. Mm. And uh, the, the, the fact that, for example, the federal movement had to be handed over, taken away from the politicians, because after the first convention, it was clear that the colonial parliaments all fight with one another and never agree with one another. And uh, they worked out a way of doing this. This happened at Corowa in 1893 to John Quick proposed, and it was adopted at Corowa, which was a people's conference. It wasn't an official conference, but it was decided that the way to move ahead with Federation was not to have a convention and then send the draft constitution to each of the parliaments to settle, because they never agree. And if they continued that way, we'd probably still be several countries. Uh, what they decided was that the next convention should be directly elected, which it was in most parts. They have some one or two states still <laughs> still appointed, but it was basically elected. The second thing was that once the conven once the constitutional convention agreed on the draft constitution, having consulted widely, including widely with the politicians, it would then be sent to the people directly and uh, put to them in referendums in each of the colonies or states as we call them now and that would be the way it would be approved before it was sent to London and that's how they did it in an extraordinarily short period of time less than four years from when the final convention was established which then went round to the state capitals and consulted widely in an extraordinarily short period of time they went they developed the constitution they put it to referendums referendums in each state it had to be held twice because New South Wales, being the difficult state, rejected it. It didn't, re it didn't reach the required number of votes. And within that four years, they then got it to London, and they didn't have they didn't have jet aeroplanes and uh, mm. Skype and so on, and mm. the internet. They got it to London. It went through the British Parliament. The premiers went with it. Most of the premiers. Uh, and, and it was passed through the British Parliament with some minor changes, to which uh, the colonial secretary was criticised in the House of Lords for daring to do that. They were mainly about the Privy Council. And it got through, it was signed by, given royal assent by Queen Victoria. It had to be then delayed until it was proclaimed because she was waiting on the West Australian Referendum. The West Australian referendum came in late, and uh, it was the West Australians, heavily assisted by the the Easterners who'd come in the gold rush at Kalgoorlie and Coolgardie, uh, that got through. It got to London, and the Queen uh, was then satisfied that uh, the West Australians had agreed to come into the Federation. So she proclaimed the legislation, which was to take effect. Uh, wonderfully, on the 1st of January, uh, 1901. So within four years, less than four years, that was got through. Mm. And the other thing to remember, and this mm. it, it, it is so different from most other countries, there was no war, there were no killings, there were no riots, 
there's no recorded evidence of any violence during this whole process, which is, must make it the only one ever in the world where such a momentous union has happened. It happened so peacefully. And uh, when it uh, went through the very first, well, the two acts of the federal parliament, one was in relation to the White Australia policy, which was just called the Immigration Act, which many people are quite rightly critical of. It was pushed very strongly by the Labour Party, which they <laughs> now suppress these days. Uh, yeah. And it was, I think it was more a fear by Labour that uh, when the Asian immigrants came in, they'd uh, negotiate wages at less than the rates the unions had been able to get. I don't think it was as racist as we think it was. But the other, the other piece of legislation of which we're very proud is uh, giving the votes to women. And, of course, that, that we, we perhaps overstress our pride on that. The, the pride should be in South Australia being the only state to give the votes to women. And they then woke up at the, uh, in the parliament, the politicians woke up to the fact that this gave proportionately South Australia twice the number of voters as every other state. So it helped them in relation to their House of Representative seats. So once one state did it, it's another example of competitive federation. Once one state did it, every other state had to do it, and the federation too. So that that encouraged uh, giving women the uh, right to vote. And it didn't it didn't have the disastrous consequences that some people predicted. In fact, it was a good thing. And then we were that was not only not only did they give them the right to vote. They for the first time in the world they gave them the right to become. Uh, members of parliament to stand for parliament mm. so we have a lot to be proud of mm. that's right i like that example of competitive federation I, it's one i hadn't thought of before but it's, it's a very good it, one and, and it's something we should be doing now mm. uh, i yeah. for example the national disability insurance scheme is a disaster and it shouldn't mm. have been done federally it should have been done by states doing it because we would have seen what the mistakes were and, and the best one would have tended to prevail. That's what happens in a federation. You see what's happening. America is a much... We're, we're the most centralized federation in the world, and it wasn't designed that way, but by complicity between the judges and the politicians, it's come out that way. America, for example, in America you find that some states have very low taxes, and naturally, businesses move towards those states because it's attractive. And mm -hmm. it, it encourages other states to think, oh, perhaps our taxes are a bit too high, perhaps we'd better do it this way. And Switzerland's mm -hmm. another example of a good federation. Canada, too. Germany. Mm -hmm. But uh, we, mm -hmm. we have the most centralized federation in the world, and we are suffering because of it. Mm -hmm. and, and we should... One of the other things, of course, was that it was always thought that there would be more states, but we've uh, not only have we over-centralized things in Canberra, we've over-centralized things in, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. Mm. Mm. It's too much centralization, and uh, had, we, had we allowed other states to emerge, I, we would have less of that. Mm. As you say, we're extraordinarily successful country we've got a great deal to be proud of we've come up with a lot of great innovations too and we 
there's a lot to be grateful for. One of the things I look back on Australian history and see is that we've done all these fantastic, overwhelmingly fantastic things, but we've all done this and we haven't been a republic. What are your thoughts, David, on um, actually what, what are the problems the republic represents and what do you think the movement's prospects are? Well, every movement for a republic in Australia has been a fake republican movement. Not one has been a genuine republican movement. The very first started in New South Wales in the 19th century. It was because of the influx of Asians into the country due to the gold rush. This was very unpopular in Sydney and Melbourne, and uh, this grew up into a republican movement, to, and the, the principal reason was to get out of the British Empire. They wanted to be like the Southern American states or some parts of South Africa. And this was so that they could control immigration, control other races. And that was the and it was run very much by the Bulletin magazine from Sydney. That was the first one. The second one was to develop after the First World War when the Communist Party was established, and that was to turn Australia into a Soviet style republic, something like the Soviet Union or later Eastern European states. And while that had no electoral push, it had enormous influence in the unions. At the end of the Second World War, the ACTU was dominated by communists. And uh, the communists didn't need a majority to get into power. That's how they got into power. And they got into power as a result of the military triumphs of the Red Army in Poland, uh, Czechoslovakia, and the other countries. The third movement, the third... uh, big movement was the uh, the one which led up to the referendum. That wasn't to in any way improve the governance of Australia. I say that the only reason you should ever change your constitution, particularly when you're a good one like ours, mm. is to improve the governance of Australia. Unless it significantly improves the governance, why would you change it? And I think instinctively that's why Australians tend to vote no and they're attack for always voting no, but most of the most of the previous referendums they don't often do them these days. Most of the previous referendums were to give even more power to Canberra's if the the complicity between the judges and the politicians wasn't enough. One of the things uh, I wrote a book at the time of the referendum and one of the things I when I went over all the referendums I, it dawned on me that most of them wouldn't be necessary anymore because the High Court has given even more powers to the Commonwealth through the external affairs power, for example, and the corporations power. All the things on which we were asked in referendums wouldn't be necessary. Now, the, getting back to the Republican movement, that Republic was to develop a Republic which was to increase... It was supported by two-thirds of the politicians, at least. It was supported by all of the press and much of the electronic media, except uh, except the more conservative parts of radio. Mm. And it was to, obviously, to increase the powers of the political class. One of the things mm. we tried to get into the question was the way in which the president could be sacked. It was, it was extraordinary. It would have been the only republic in the world in which the president could be removed by the prime minister at the drop of a hat. He could be removed without notice, without any grounds whatsoever. You didn't have to. You didn't have to go to a trial, as in the United States. 
without any grounds and without any right of appeal. The president would be a puppet of the prime minister. It was to increase the powers of the political class. He would have, and I remember after the referendum was defeated, a number of Republican constitutional experts then joined in a forum of the University of New South Wales. It's in the University of New South Wales Law Journal, where they all pointed out to the disastrous aspects of the model which they kept quiet about at the time of the referendum. It was a disaster. The Turnbull-Keating model was an absolute disaster. Now, now the latest movement of the Republicans is to have a republic, but they don't say what sort of republic they want. Imagine asking for a change of the Constitution, and you want a republic, but you won't say what sort of republic. It's as if they were marching down the street saying, chanting, we want a republic, but then adding, but we haven't the foggiest idea what sort of republic we want. That's because either they don't know or they're keeping it secret, which I think is probably more likely. It's going to be a fake republic again. It's going to be a republic which will concentrate more power in the hands of the political class. Now, if they were real republicans, they'd be looking at and they'd be bringing into their model aspects of the most successful republics in the world. And historically and that the two most successful republics in the world are the United States and Switzerland. Now, if they were coming up with a real model, you'd listen to them. But I think that they're not coming up with a real model. It's just, again, a fake republic because they want to do two things. They want to throw the crown, get the crown out of the Constitution. The crown's a wonderful institution which provides leadership above politics, and it's a a very important check and balance in the Constitution. And they want to increase the power of the political class, the power of the elites. And that's what I suspect they're going to do, but of course they haven't yet told us what they're going to do. I think that that's a key question, is will this improve the governance of Australia? And you made the good point about the United States. There's a very compelling case about, you know, control over immigration, some stewardship over sovereign decisions and there's a compelling case there but yeah you're you're right I think here with the Republican movement there's no compelling case other than um, vague stabs at symbolism and um, you know coming of age and identity and which make us sound almost like a a teenage boy or something like that yes a lot of them tell an untruth they say we're not independent and of course we couldn't be more independent than we are today and the other thing that they, it's complete untruth, and they know it's untrue. And they, they advance it because this is the only reason they can give. Because all of the other reasons they were giving in the 90s proved to be so ridiculous that people were laughing at them. For example, Al Grasby was saying that uh, the, the Crown was the reason why we had unemployment. And if we became a republic, it would significantly reduce unemployment. Well... That was rubbish, and others said, oh, improve trade, as though people trading with us could give a, a tinker's cuss as to what, what our constitutional system was. They just want to, buy, they want to buy quality goods at a low price. That's what they want. Anybody, anybody indulging in trade wants to do that. You're worried about the price. You're worried about the quality. You're not worried about the constitutional government of the country selling it to you. 
And uh, they, so they eventually took an obscure term, which wasn't in the Macquarie Dictionary at the time because it was so obscure, known only to diplomats and international lawyers. That's the term head of state. And they've argued then from that that the only way we can have an Australian as head of state is if we become a republic, which is a complete lie, because, mm. particularly by the politicians, because every government of Australia holds the Governor-General out to be the Australian head of state, and he's received as the Australian head of state, uh, and they use it when it suits them. Both Turnbull and Shorten know this yet they both belong to the parliamentary friends for an Australian head of state, which means you can't trust either of them because they're not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and, and once, the, once the Republicans come up with a good model, then people can listen to that. I, I'm very impressed by the Swiss model because I think it makes the politicians accountable. And I think once, what you've got to do is make your politicians accountable 24-7, not every three or four years in often confected elections because of rigged pre-selections, which all the parties invo- are involved in, particularly in New South Wales, which, being the first penal state, performs the worst in this regard. Uh, I think once what, what we've really got to do is control the politicians because... Politicians don't know much more than anybody else. They seem to have lost a lot of common sense in the current uh, round of politicians, but you don't go into politics because you've, you've, you've achieved some qualification, as you do, say, in medicine or law and things like that, where you, uh, you, know, you study hard and you, you develop skills and so on, and you then can become a good doctor. The same with being a good lawyer or a good architect. You can't study to become a politician. They don't. They know no more than anybody else. And as I say, they seem to have lost all common sense, most of them. And and uh, the idea that uh, they will have a better idea in running the country is not necessarily so. So I think there's a lot to be said in making them more accountable. And I'd like a constitutional change that did that. Now the American one is essentially, essentially, it's based on Britain after the Glorious Revolution in 1688, where the constitutional monarchy was introduced, but it was introduced as, it's the constitutional monarchy Mark I, because the king was still the real head of the executive. Now the king or the queen is the nominal head of the executive. But the the king was still the real head, and uh, it was only gradually came to be headed by a prime minister principally because the king couldn't speak English. One of the kings couldn't speak English. But uh, America took that because it was based on the colonial governments of a governor, sometimes elected but usually appointed from London, and an assembly in which the governor didn't have to, didn't didn't require that he had the confidence of the assembly. And they use that as the model, and uh, that's the model they have in America, where you have a separate executive, an elected executive, the governor or the president. Now, that has a lot to that has a lot going for it. I still think our system is better, but uh, the American system is good, and I think a good argument can be put up for that. But none of them argue that. What they want to do is they want to. Uh, rip the crown out of the Constitution, slip in some political puppet or political nominee, 
and run the system that way. So it's all it's all uh, very close, all run by the political class. That's what they want with their so-called republic. It's a fake republic. It's not a real republic. Mm, absolutely something to avoid. David, in, in wrapping up, um, John Howard always has always spoken about the importance of having cult, a cultural confidence in our past, and you've mentioned it too uh, previously. Um, how do we get better at broadcasting an Australian exceptionalism or this cultural confidence in our past? I think it's by doing what you're doing. And it's a wonderful thing now that with technology you can do this sort of thing because uh, the media tends to the media tends to be too related to the elite it's too much part of the elite it's not about in australia as in some other countries particularly now the united states but uh, the the uh, mainstream media can go along too much with the uh, the political class which they did in 1999 when they were trying to create this uh, fake Republic of the Turnbull-Keating Republic. I think doing what you're doing, that is broadcasting a different view, seeding that view into the, into the community, and hopefully getting a, a more active class of people, rank-and-file people, so that we can have the real reforms. We also need, I think we need a, a real government, what we've got at the moment under under what I call the liners, liberals in name only, and Labour, you've got two very similar groups of people vying for the the control of the parliament. And what you what we're going to get after the next election, if the liners continue, the next government will be a big spending, big taxing government which thinks very much in elitist terms and we have to we have to be pushing for something different and every so often something does happen which is different for example in the United States we see a president who came from outside and mm. and I think in many ways that will improve the governance of the United States and I think we need to do that in Australia and what you're doing is helping I think helping people to think that there is a view different from the the standard views that are being pushed in the media and uh, being pushed by the politicians. The politicians are trying to create the idea that the only big issue in the next election will be whether people get the uh, four or $500 that uh, Morrison is promising contrasted with the $900 that Shorten is promising. Well, it's bigger than that. I think, and uh, we really need we really need a, a something else to emerge from the political system. Mm. Well, well, thank you very much for your kind words. I think the um, who would have thought that a podcast would be would fall under one of Arthur Phillips' four institutions, and that it's a part of a vigorous civil society. I um, look, we're an extraordinary country. We've got a great deal to be proud of, which was what we've discussed, Professor Flint. Thank you very much for helping us shed light on this today. A pleasure and congratulations again for your initiative. Thank you again, dear listeners. That wraps up another episode of the Jacobs Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Professor David Flint. A reminder to get in touch with me at seanjacobs.com.au or leave a rating or a review. I'd really love to hear any feedback that you have or any ideas for future episodes. I am all ears. Thanks again and until next time.